Hello and welcome to the Prestige a podcast for film lovers made by film lovers about how films work, how films are made and the intentions of the directors involved. To this end we are spending this season focusing on a director for a month at a time um, and talking about what that director's films mean in great detail each week taking a different theme or idea and running with that and we end with our recommendations based on the theme of that week's film or on actors involved in that week's film or any other tangential connections we want to make. Every week we start with our discussion of what we've been watching, what else we've had time to watch this week. Uh, Rob, you first. So I've got two to talk about this week and one I'll do very, very, very quickly because no one wants me to go into more detail. And one I'll spend a bit more time on. So the first okay. one I watched last night. If anyone follows me on Twitter, they would have seen me live tweet a whole film last night. And that would be Friday night, UK time. Um, and that is the... Wait, when was it made? It's got to be something. The 2000, well, 2011 film, Ant Farm Dickhole. <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is one of the weirder films in my collection. Um, by one of the weirdest directors that I'm aware of. Uh, Bill Zibella. And essentially it's about a man, a bookman who's so badly bullied that a colony of ants take up residence inside his penis um, and then he uses it to extract revenge on the world. It looks like it was made in 1995 on someone's home video camera in their own lounge. It is... I gave it one star and that was being very generous. Um, but I, I live did the whole thing last night on um, on Twitter. So if anyone's caught up with that, yeah, Ant Farm Dick Hole. It's yeah, yeah. Um, on to bigger, better, and brighter things. I have been watching the latest incarnation of the Star Trek franchise, um, and by that I mean the TV franchise rather than the, the movie franchise. So this is 2017 Star Trek Discovery set way way back before even the original series 10 years before that it follows essentially a a war criminal um in michael burnham um played by so- i'll pronounce this wrong uh soniqua martin green i believe it is i could be wrong with that um and her adventures in space uh, it's more of a serialized show than the traditional star trek being monster of the week style it's very good. There's amazing support from Jason Isaacs, from Doug Jones, from Mary Wiseman, uh, from Shazad um, Latif. It's, I mean, it's 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 very very good. I went into it being a bit hesitant. Star Trek TV shows haven't been the greatest, shall we say, uh, in the last sort of two three incarnations. So it was it was brilliant to get back and being something good and something uh, worth watching. And I've probably hardcore about eight nine episodes this week, which when you've got a little baby is pretty hardcore. Mm. <laughs> What about you, Sam? Um, well, we had a couple of friends visiting last weekend who recommended very strongly something that they'd both been watching. And um, we thought it was going to be something that both my wife and I could watch. And it sounded particularly gripping and like some other things that we've we've enjoyed watching. It's the recent TV series, McMafia. Which, despite the Scottish-sounding name, is Russian. The muk bit is just a reference to the corporatization of 
be a gangster. So like the McDonald's franchise. Um, and it's very good, but it turns out to be rather more grisly than we thought. So not really my wife's cup of tea. So we watched a couple of episodes and I think I may be watching the rest of the series on my own. But it was very good. It, it has... Um, great acting performances including from James Norton in the main role um, with able support from a cast of largely unknowns because lots of them are Russian speakers well unknown to English speaking audiences Um, but yeah it it was great it had sort of political intrigue and family relationships and people having their throat slit in rather graphic ways um yeah it's a good watch and it's right on bbc your, right up your street, then. yes it's on bbc iplayer at the moment fair enough fair enough well as sam mentioned at the start we are going through this month looking at a director at a time as it were um and we've been looking at this this month at uh, alejandro g Irenato, uh, gonzalez Irenato, i believe it's announced um and we've reached the end of his month and probably his biggest and most renowned film, his most mainstream mm. film to date, um, and that is 2014's Birdman or The Unpitted Virtue of Ignorance. How did we end up here? This place is horrible. It smells like balls. We had it all. You were a movie star, remember? Who was this guy? He used to be Birdman. I like that poster. You wrote this adaptation? I did, yeah. And you're directing and starring in your adaptation. That's ambitious. Are you afraid people will say you're doing this play to battle the impression that you're a washed-up comic strip character? Birdman, as we will be calling it for the rest of this podcast, because I can't say the whole title over and over again, is the tale of Riggan, a washed-up ex-superhero actor, played by Michael Keaton, who is trying to grasp but one last attempt at relevance and critical acclaim with his adaption of a Raymond Carver novel. He's supported by his daughter, played by Emma Stone, and a variety of, of character actors, um, both real characters and actors within the film itself, uh, of Naomi Watts, like Galifakis, uh, Andrea Reisborg, um, we've got uh, great support coming in from Edward Norton, and it tells sort of his attempts to wrestle with his past and come to terms with where he is now. Most notably, apart from a very short um, pre-cluding um, epilogue, it is ostensibly shot in one take. It isn't shot in one take. It is, it is shot in a very carefully edited lots of takes. But it has that same. It goes for that same feel of one, one continuous flow as as the story moves around New York. Now, Sam, as as we've often said in the last few weeks, this is your director more than mine. How did you find his his real big turn into commercialised filmmaking? Um. Well, now, as as you said, I I love this director, and Morris Perez is great. Twenty One Grams, one of my favourites. Bits of Babel, I can get on board with. The Revenant, his most recent one, I found brilliant. Um. This, however, I th- I just couldn't get on board with it lots of the time. Um, occasionally, I mean, 
Edward Norton is absolutely brilliant, and occasionally I did, I did enjoy bits with him in, as is Michael Keaton was refreshingly good. Um, towards the end, when they said, "Who knew Birdman can act?" I was thinking, "Well, I was kind of thinking the same thing about Michael Keaton because, well, I." It's it's my fault. I haven't seen him very much, but I tend to think of Michael Keaton as Batman. So it, it's it, it was refreshing for me to see him in in something that he was he was generally good in. Um, and Naomi Watts is always great, and Emma Stone was brilliant, and so there there were enough performances in it that made me think, okay, this this bit's good, and this bit's good, but it just I I just couldn't get on board with it, and it felt. From the very beginning, with the sort of the letters appearing to drum beats and then disappearing and leaving the word amor at the end, and then this sort of very stylized done in one take, I thought, well, this this is clever, but it doesn't wow me. So there there were things things in this that I definitely got on board with, and then other reasons that I just I, I thought this was this was too much i think what, what sums it up for me something i mean the 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 biggest thing that i couldn't really get over was that he felt the need to insert this magical realist element it felt it was i thought it was enough of a story to have him as a washed up actor and his troubled relationship with his daughter and his ex-wife and Ed Norton's character, and then he, 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 the fact that he had been a superhero actor twenty years before was was enough, and and then on top of this, you had this sort of telekinesis and flying, and actually, not only was he a superhero actor, he was actually a superhero as well, and I just thought it, we didn't need that extra. And I just didn't understand why that extra bit had been put in. Okay. How about you? Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in two minds about this film. Now, I'll, I'll deal with the good first before I move on to the bad. I think that a, I, I've, I've got to hand it to the camera crew and the editing crew who put together this film. I think the there's the one takeness of it all, and what you can, if you watch them very carefully, spot the joins. It's a it's a technical achievement, mm. um, irregardless of anything else. And in many ways, I can respect what Alejandro uh, was going for with this movie. Um, unlike you, I don't mind the magical realism of that. I felt that it did hammer home the idea that uh, that Regan has been living in this fantasy world and that he isn't after anything real and he you know, he's happy living in this world. Okay. Um, even at the end. So I think there's some good things in it. I'm sure once we get into more of the meat of the episode, we'll touch on some of those as the things it does well or it attempts to do. But my problem was I was bored by it. Hmm. I it just didn't in the same. Whilst I wasn't a fan on some of the of the other films you touched on this month, at least they weren't overly boring. You know, Twenty One Grams, which I thought was a bit of a mess. It wasn't boring. It was you what you wanted to see next scene it was here. I just didn't care. Hmm. Um, I've mentioned briefly about my my kind of my limitations of dealing with people who are horrible people doing horrible things, and that isn't quite true here. But it's still it, this is a a group of vain self-centered people, 
Um, and the film tries to convince me to care about their problems, and I don't. I, don't. I just don't care about their problems. Um, I don't think that the people who we see in this film are real people, and the film is attempting to try and show us something real. I don't think it does that. It shows us faux celebrity. I don't think anyone akin to the Ed Norton character actually exists. I don't think anyone akin to the Michael Cackington character actually exists. Um, so... I just kind of didn't... I didn't connect with it on any kind of emotional level whatsoever. As I say, technical achievement, brilliant, and I enjoy the meta-ness of having Michael Keaton play this character. And I think there's some... There's some interesting ideas going on, but I don't think they coalesce in some sort of any interesting kind of enjoyable, emotionally reactive film. I think this is a film that exists purely on a... Oh, that was interesting level. Hmm. I think this... The the messiness of having Michael Keaton in in this role is something that I really appreciated. Um, I did really like the fact that it was evidently on some level about him, his perceived. Um, did he did he sell out for Batman or it is inhabiting the role of Batman in the early nineties? I I really enjoyed that that bit um, as I said it, it was the magical realist that I wasn't quite so on board with as you said the the camera editing although you can sort of see when it dips in and out of um, mm-hmm. the the light goes there are, there are edit points there it's, it was nevertheless incredibly impressive and I think the fact that the, 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 the scenes shift um, so they they aren't they aren't trying to tell you a they aren't trying to pretend to you that it's this is entirely one take like, no. they, because scenes just catch me around it's very clear that uh, the um, that isn't the case now talking about magical realism thing I've got a couple of questions for you I think this is a film that as as Alandra has said has as many interpretations as there are seats in the cinema there mm. are many ways to look at this film and so I'm intrigued to know what you're taking it was now you've now in talk about the magical realism. Now, I I read it that like he like the idea he's throwing the things that are being thrown around the office the telekinesis he's actually doing those like he doesn't fly um, he gets in a taxi but he in, in his delusional state he thinks he's flying yes um, which I, I think works apart from every single one apart from the very early time in which a light falls on his co-actor's head his mm. head um, and that you see him look up at the light and then the light falls down and every other time you see this magical realism I can buy that it's a, it's a, it's a delusion I don't understand how that one works now I'm intrigued to know if you've got a, a thought on that I see what you mean because it's it's it is actually happening hmm um, he can't he, he can't be in the rooftops loosening the lights whilst being on stage no in the same way, in all the other ones, you can, you know, there's too many. He breaks up his off his. Um, you see his room being torn apart, uh, and it cuts back, and you see him blood in his hands, holding the wood. Like he's clearly doing it himself. Yeah, I did think that, and, and I thought it was really clever how it's just sort of subtly at the end with the taxi driver, and you realise mm. that, the, yeah, that that he's not necessarily been flying to the delusion. Um, yeah, it's interesting because. It is something that drives the whole plot, or one of the plots with this character turning and suing the play and turning up in a wheelchair. Um, I'm not sure. Although, hmm, is there the suggestion that he had he had help? There was 
more to it than just than just him. Did... It's, 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 I think that's where the, I mean the film works in that you know the idea of it doesn't actually give you the answer. I mean we will touch on it a little bit now, guys. Moving into into clear spoilers is the end scene. Um, the, after he's uh, tried to shoot himself in his hospital, and you have a scene with him in the toilet with with Birdman delusion till there, and then he jumps out the window. And then you have this shot of his daughter, who clearly, you think, sees him fly. Mm. And that's a, 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 and they've all on record saying that there's no, there's no, art, there's no real arts to this ending. Um, but it's interesting that, that, that that's another moment in which, well, can he fly? Because, or is she participating in this, in this delusion? Or did he not jump? Or is the whole thing, did he die? It's a whole, it's a dream. You know, what, what, what was the ending of this film? See, I thought I had very clear ideas about this ending. I didn't think he was flying. I didn't think he fell. I think that he has jumped out the window and sort of leapt up joyously and, and there was caught onto some railings or was hanging there like just outside the window. And her looking up, seeing him and laughing is more relief than anything because she knows he hasn't fallen to his death and he's just... Standing there, he's just hanging there, quite pleased with himself above the above the rooftops. So I didn't, I didn't think he was he was flying at that point at all. Fair enough. I, my, my, I, I took it to be honest to be he, he killed himself. Right. Um, I mean, you know, if, if you tie it back to the that very first quote of the film, you know, he wanted to be loved, to love the one be loved. That he's reached that point of adulation. He's reached that point where the world is adoring mm. of him. And that's what he wants, and so he he can't he like he knows he can't come back from that. I suppose that, re- that, that's what this what the play is all about, and what yeah, it he, is to be loved. His, his realization, which he has, you know, has during the the, the performance of, you know, actually actualization of himself, um, which leads to his a suicide attempt. That he. He knows he he can't be what the world wants him to be unless he doesn't come back. What his daughter does, I don't know. I mean, whether that's a a a some theories it's a mental break on her part uh, that she she is her her father's daughter and has bought into delusion. I don't know. But my my reading of it very much was that he he's killed himself because I think this is where we I want to sort of dive into the theme of the movie a bit more. Is the idea that he wants renown. He doesn't want, he's had fame. He doesn't want fame. Um, and Ed Norton said earlier that, you know, um, popularity is the slightly cousin of prestige. Mm. And he's after prestige. He isn't after making a good film or a good play. He, he, there's no point in this he's interested in making a good play. He just wants to be liked. He just wants to be liked by these people, these these actors who, who look down on him because of his, his Birdman history. Um, and the film clearly has... A bit of a, a hate for Superman films, superior films. Um, Alejandro clearly has an issue with this kind of that kind of filmmaking. Yeah, you felt very much that the words of Tabitha, the critic, were sort of Iñárritu's words towards the film industry in general. Mm. He, that that's what he he wants. He's on the side of the theatre critic here. And I think that the. The actors in this, that the, the, you have the sort of Ed Norton character, this Broadway theatre actor, um, who is presented a little bit as a, a real actor, shall we say, like a proper actor. Mm. Um, but it's clear that he has, that he's not. He he he's as shallow and as 
self-centered as anyone else in this in this world he, he's made, made a living doing the broadway plays but you know his first introduction in, in the show is that he's been quit slash fired from another project mm. he's clearly a hard person to work with and he is as self-centered and as you know as self-interested in himself and it's not about making a good play it's not about making a good thing no one's interested in making art in terms of quality they just want renown they just want the salvation they just want the critics to like them and that's how I think you tie that ending together, you know, that Riggins finally achieved this. He's liked, he's beloved, his play is a success. He has been accepted into this world of of theatre and real acting. And that's it, he's done. He has nothing, nowhere else to go. He has no more, no more mountains to climb. Hmm. Something about that, though, I was thinking about his, his on-stage suicide attempt, gun mm-hmm. firing. Um... I didn't. There's something, something about that. I think there was there was some anger when, you know, when earlier in the play in the in the film, slip of the tongue there. Earlier in the film, Ed Norton comes in and says, "Your gun's ridiculous. You can see that it's a fake, and you know, mm. sort of Chekhov's gun. Like, there's something about this gun that's going to um, go off later on." And I just thought that. Something about his choice of a real gun and going out on stage with a real gun was a, to to use the words of the film. It was it was a fuck you to Edward Norton. It mm. wasn't necessarily anger at himself, um, giving up on himself, or something about his place in the world. It was saying, look, if you want reality in this play, I am giving you reality. I'm giving you a gun that actually fires. I'm willing to hurt myself for this play. Yeah, I mean, and that's his, his... It's just that constant need to be to be liked, to be, to, to be adored, to be admired. And it sends him down these dark places. Um, which is interesting, because I think that there's an interesting dichotomy in that character, because it's very clear that he doesn't care if his daughter likes him. And he doesn't care if he doesn't care about his girlfriend or his ex-wife or even Zach Galifantis, his friend. Like, he doesn't care about the people in his life. He cares about the public. Mm. Um, and at the end, you have this genuinely tender moment in which he um, has a moment with his daughter and they kind of come together and share like, a, a momentary embrace. And it's it's this... The, the film does kind of... Well, well, this, sort of painting this picture of this man obsessed with the public... And that's why I think it's interesting that the, the daughter can know about, about Twitter and social media. There's this whole world of relevance out there that, that he could have. And in the end, he joins Twitter, or she joins it for him, and he gets uh, thousands of subscribers in the first day. And you find that he, all he wants is to feed this beast of you know, admiration. He, he, he beat, he won the world of, of Birdman. He wants the next one now. Hmm. That was interesting when... You have the, this sort of initial rant about, well, on Emma Stone's part, about his irrelevance, and she says, it's not important, you're not important. And you've got... I mean, because it's clear that social media worth, in inverted commas, is not important. And no. Twitter and YouTube and Facebook are ephemeral. And the film knows that, and we all know that. But what Emma Stone is saying is, like, the opposite of that. Like, you are irrelevant because you're not seen through these 
these social media lenses. Because mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's the thing is that once again, it's he's going for theatre critics and he's going for the, the Broadway audience, and that's still quite a niche renown. Mm. It, it it's it may be professional kudos and it may be professional renowned. Um, and the idea that, that theatre is is the the big brother of of film, shall we say? But actually, in the general wider world, it's irrelevant. Mm. You know, he to everybody, he's Birdman. He's still Birdman to everybody. Um, and I think that's it's it's interesting that they, they do this. But I think I mean, the other thing, obviously, since this film was made, that uh, TV has kind of become on, and that's very interesting. Sort of in the real world, comparing this film, this film obviously about film versus theatre. And there's really no mention of TV. But probably back then, there wasn't a lot of mention of, of prestige TV in the way that these days, doing a TV show, doing a proper, you know, House of Cards, Breaking Bad TV show is as much renowned as anything else. Yeah, it's really weird to think that a four-year-old film is now a historical document. It is. You're right. I think it's four, four years ago, these shows existed, but it just feels, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of Jason time in films between writing and release, but it just feels like it's missing out on this large part of, you know, there's people are doing great TV as better than some films out there. Mm. Yeah. So, given that we both were not overly warm in this film, do you have some recommendations on things that uh, you'd point us in direction of instead of this, Sam? Yes. Now, the first one I want to talk about is... I mean, I've, I've mentioned him this episode, and people in the film say, oh, isn't he brilliant? And he is brilliant. Edward Norton is great in this film. I think he's a he's an underused, underappreciated actor in general. He's been great in other things around the 2000s. And I just want to, because it's one of my favourite films, I just want to talk about Rounders. Because it is great. It is... Matt Damon... Just at... I, th- I think at the peak of his powers. Just post Goodwill Hunting. And Edward Norton is good as a character who is there as a friend. But really not supportive in the way that a friend should be. And he has that. is a sort of a, a, a slice of the Mike Shiner gritty asshole about him while also being at times generally supportive and mm. it, it's just a brilliant film and I love it love it um, my second film is one one I've I've also mentioned and one we're not going to get the chance to have a look at this month it's his most recent film The Revenant um, and I picked this out it, again it was one of my it was my favourite film for a couple of years ago and um, it was it was great, the acting performances were great and more than that the cinematography was brilliant um, they made this big thing of only having uh, I think they only had about 90 minutes shooting time a day because they had to shoot at the witching hour sort of it, it, dusk time, that was when, when the light was right for what they were doing um, and the cinematographer, the DP on that film, is the same as on this film. It's Emmanuel Lubezki, who reunited with Inyaritu for that film. So that's my second recommendation this week, is 2015's The Revenant. Excellent. excellent. I've taken a little bit of our little bit there, and I've taken uh, Emmanuel Lubezki as my link too. Right. Or Chivo, Chivo, as he's known on set. 
Um, and I want to talk about a film he made back in 2011, so three years prior to Birdman, and that is The Tree of Life, Terrence Malick's sort of much maligned and diverse film, um, telling the tale of a family and also the tale of everything. It has its detractors, it certainly has its moments in which it doesn't make a lot of sense, but the direct the the visuals the sort of the, the visual stylings that Chive brings to it are beautiful they are haunting and it has that same kind of idea of light and color that uh, Birdman has I think I would say that uh, Chivo and Richard Dawkins or Richard Dawkins um, Richard De- uh, Roger Deakins even uh, Chivo and Roger Deakins are probably the two best cinematographers working today um, and Tree of Life is is Chivo at his absolute peak. So if you haven't seen it, or if you kind of dismissed it on the first watch through, which a lot of people did, including myself, it's worth going back and checking it out. I want to see a film with Richard Dawkins as DP. Yeah, I'm not sure that's that's uh, his forte, shall we say. No. <laughs> um, my second recommendation is a film from the year after The Birdman. And this is kind of a thematic, visual thematic um echo opposed to Birdman and that is the film Victoria whereas Birdman pretends to be one take and uses that to dramatic, a dramatic effect Victoria literally is one take it's a uh, a sort of a German film um, it won't ask anyone that the UK is likely to know um, but it literally is a one take film shot entirely in one take over the course of two hours it is limited by that but it does some amazing work in terms of taking you places with that one shot it is essentially an action movie um that they managed to do in one shot it is i wouldn't say it's a masterpiece but it's certainly a if important film in terms of technical technical realism that it portrays and it doesn't actually cut at any point it's one long take and it's worth seeing for that if you imagine birdman somehow crossed with run lola run you're getting close to this film right um, so yeah, that's Victoria from 2015. Do you have, and we we did this with our with our last director. Do you have any sort of closing thoughts on Inyarasu? What do you think he's doing in his films? Um, I think. Okay, I'm not going to say nice things now, so bear with me. Okay, I don't think he is as good a director as is renowned. I think he relies on directorial tricks. I think he relies on. I suppose the idea of technical wizardry or technical stories and making um, making the technical filmmaking the story. We talked about this previously when we talked about the, the Matrix and the idea that the filmmaking process of the film, the medium, is the story rather than the story being the story. And here I think it's the same. He's using, we've seen that in all the films we've seen this on this one, that there is, there's always something going on. It isn't a story. He's also employing some sort of editing trick or some sort of a shooting trick. And I don't think he has the wherewithal to link those to the story he's trying to tell. I don't think they always work. 21 Grams is an example of this. Um, and this one the same. You know, the, the, the idea that we didn't talk about much on this show, but this one long take, and it's a lovely, interesting thing, but I'm not entirely sure how it relates to the story he's trying to tell beyond they worked out they could, so they did. I think he gets great performances from his actors, um, but I think he is let down by... A inability to mar- marry style with substance. Right. 
Now, Sam, I appreciate we entered this with saying, saying he was your, your director, and I, I've never been a big fan, and you have. Going through it again over this month, how's it felt for you? I'm gonna well, you've you've had your your time to say, but I think I'm gonna say good things. I mean, actually, I'm I'm not gonna disagree with you because going back over over his work this month has brought those sort of stylistic limitations to the fore to me. Um, but something I think he does really well is to put films on the screen that explore how people relate to each other and it sounds it sounds a really um, trite thing to say and it sounds a really easy thing to do and it's not a really easy thing to do and I think we should appreciate just how easy he makes it look because these are films about the difficulty of relationships between a husband and his ex-wife or a husband and his daughter or in 21 grams between people in a relationship um, which is uh, marred by a past in prison or in a Morris Paris relationship between a brother and his brother's wife all these these little things little ways that he finds to explore how people relate to to each other and I think that for all his other limitations he does that really well and that's something that we should be celebrating I think fair enough fair enough so guys we are moving on um, from uh, Inatu into uh, another director and we, we have, we're going from the, the, the quintessential Mexican director to one might say the quintess- one of the quintessential American directors and that is Spike Lee now I'm I'm going into this one being a bit um, I don't know what's the third a bit uh, new a bit fresh to it I'm, I don't know loads of his movies so we're going to try and deal with it in the best way two white middle class kids from South England can deal with the black American experience yes and I'm I'm fairly new to it as well I mean we had to have films recommended to us by by another friend so yeah who knows what's going to happen (laughs) this could be interesting so we will pick up next week with 1986's film she's gotta have it the uh, the film that kind of broke spike lee onto the world till then guys you can find us on twitter at prestige podcast you find just me at life underscore academic and you can find just me at rob kaiju and we'll see you back here next week Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr.